Oh, uh, just wonderful when the church, when we come together and we worship and we sing it, one voice, one heart, one mind. Um, what a great morning and uh, what a privilege I have uh, to welcome uh, to Firewall Bible Fellowship missionaries that we've had the privilege of supporting uh, for quite a few years. And uh, they are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and they, they love each other. What a wonderful uh, marriage they have as husband and wife almost I guess 20 years in September you all have us beat by like two months yeah we, we have a lot to learn from y'all <laughs> and um, Dave and Gloria Furman have been a part of Firewheel for I guess about 16 years and um, this week I've been reading in first uh, Samuel and there was there was a phrase that really grabbed a hold of my heart and uh, this is exactly um, it expresses my heart for you, Dave. Um, it was the story of, of David and Jonathan. And that when, when Jonathan came to David, uh, it says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And that, that has been my experience with you, Dave. And uh, I'm happy to be your Jonathan. And because uh, I love you, and I love your family, and uh, I'm so thankful for your ministry and the ministry that you're going to do this morning as you serve not just uh, a church, but the body of believers here at Firewall. So come on up, Dave Furman. Let's welcome. Love you, brother. Love you, brother. Love you, too. Awesome. Wow, thanks for that warm welcome, Firewheel. Wow, it is great to see your faces it was great to be in the Sunday school a little bit ago. So I had the privilege of being the director of small groups at Firewheel in 2006 and 2007. Raise your hand if you were at Firewheel 2006, 2007. Okay, many of you. Uh, and then many new faces that we've met along the way. Um, and some we're meeting even uh, today. And so good morning, Firewheel. I love the excitement and just the joy to gather together here in person. I'm here with my wife, Gloria, and our four children, Eliza, Nora, Judson, and Troy. We're all right in front of the rowdy and excited youth group right here on the front side. It sounds like you guys had a great time at camp. I'm sorry for the heat. I think it's our fault coming from Dubai coming from the desert. We thought we were going to get cooler weather here in Texas, and yet hot is just hot. And, uh, and Rowlett is hot, and it is, uh, but we're glad to be here. We had four flights to get here. We had uh, 26 hours of delays. We had to go through immigration into Canada and spend a night there that was unplanned. We lost all of our suitcases. Let me take that back. The airline lost all of our suitcases. Thankfully, eventually, we got all of them back. Uh, one of them was broken, but a week later, two of them showed up in San Antonio at Gloria's parents' house. So we, we, we got it. We're here, and we're just so delighted. And to any of our new friends here who may not have the background uh, of, uh, of our family, you'll see a picture of Gloria, myself, and our daughter Eliza landing on the Arabian Peninsula on August 23rd, 2008. So that's a day we celebrate. It's our, we call it our anniversary. <laughs> the, you get that? The anniversary of when we first stepped foot on the sand of the Arabian Peninsula. So some of our luggage is there in the background. Uh, again, Gloria was pregnant with our second child, uh, Nora. Dubai, if you're unfamiliar with it, it, is the largest city in the United Arab Emirates, also known as the UAE. Uh, it's one of seven countries on the Arabian Peninsula. Saudi Arabia takes up most of the country. It borders the UAE. Uh, we also have Oman there. And then just a little bit of a, the Persian Gulf between us and the country of Iran. If you zoom in a little bit more on, on the UAE, uh, you'll see that there are uh, seven uh, emirates uh, there that are kind of like uh, states. Uh, Abu Dhabi is the largest in terms of land mass, and then Dubai is the largest in terms of population. Abu Dhabi is the capital, and then Dubai is the commercial and business and tourism uh, hub. Just a few things about our city from Dubai. You could take a seven-hour plane flight to two-thirds of the world's population. 
Uh, Dubai also has the world's tallest building. Maybe you've seen pictures of this or you've seen videos of fireworks shooting off the, the Burj Khalifa. It's over 200 stories tall. Uh, the bottom floors are a hotel and then the middle floors are, are apartments and then the top are offices. And the reason you, you don't have apartments or hotels on the top is because you can't sleep higher than about 120 floors because you would get vertigo. That's how tall this building is. Uh, because buildings, they sway a little bit, uh, maybe not to the naked eye, but if you try to sleep on an upper floor here, uh, you'll get vertigo and you, you can't make it. Dubai is also a melting pot. Many of the world's least streets people groups gather in uh, Dubai on the Arabian Peninsula. We have least streets people groups all around us. You see that reflected in our church. So Redeemer Church of Dubai, where we serve, has about 60 or more nationalities that gathered together. They gathered about nine hours ago to worship just like we're worshiping here. And uh, it was a, uh, a lay elder from our church from Kenya uh, who preached this morning. Last week we had one of our Indian pastors uh, preach. And that's what you would, you would see if you came to our church, is, is the world gathering together in one place. That it's a, it's a little taste of heaven when we gather uh, together. Our city is also very transient. And so while we love all the nations coming and the nations going, it's sad when the nations go. It's sad when, when we send good friends uh, home. Uh, it's, it's been said that pastoring an international church like ours is like trying to hug a parade. If you think about a parade, it keeps on moving. It's impossible to, to stop, and that's what it feels. And so on the downside, we're, we're saying goodbye to friends often. We're sending off friends uh, to, to ministry or to go back to their home country on a regular basis. Uh, so while that's a problem, it's also a, a possibility because we get to send people perhaps back home with a vision for the gospel and a vision for church planting and a vision for evangelizing their neighbors and with a vision of telling their family members about Jesus Christ. And so what is a problem uh, we look at as a possibility and, and a prayer that God would use ministry in the Middle East to reach the nations, that, that God would use Dubai as a, a hub uh, of gospel work uh, to the entire world. And so God is indeed building His church uh, in the Middle East. Uh, but it hasn't been easy. Uh, throughout our time in the Middle East, uh, many of you know I've struggled with a nerve injury uh, that started uh, just right before I began work in Firewheel, and, and then through that time, we moved to the Middle East about one month into our ministry. We had come there to change the world, and I couldn't even change my clothes without help. Uh, my ulnar nerve, which is the, the nerve that connects with your two smaller fingers, just stopped working properly and led to many surgeries after surgeries. And so I'm still in physical pain 100% uh, of the time. Um, I have very little strength. And so while I'd love to meet you after the service, I won't be able to shake your hand. It's not because I'm a germaphobe. Well, actually, I kind of am a germaphobe, so it works out a bit. But it's, it's because I can't actually shake your hand. If you see my wife corralling all the bags or all the kids, it's not that I'm a prima donna pastor. I just can't do it on a trip uh, to, to a pastor's conference in the U.S., You'll see a picture up uh, of my friend there. I was eating lunch with a table full of pastors. I was traveling with one of our elders. You'll see his picture up there now. Without a word, he leaned over. He was sitting next to me. The rest were senior pastors. And Mac was sitting next to me. He just leaned over without a word, and he began to cut my steak uh, for me, which is really sweet. I can't do it on my own. And so he cut my steak. Well, sensing the awkwardness around the table of pastors who weren't yet aware of my disability, he joked and said, isn't this the way your elders serve you? <laughs> now, in the midst of hard times, we're thankful that we can laugh and we're thankful that we can see just God's grace, even in the pain, God's grace, even in uh, the suffering. And, and He has done amazing things. And what He's shown us is that He uses weak things to do great things. It's a story of the Bible that weakness is always the way so that God gets all the glory. And even as we pray today, we just, we give all the glory to Jesus. He's the one who heals. He's the one who sustains. He's the one who is with us in the trials and in the triumphs. And in the midst of the trials at Redeemer Church of Dubai, we've seen some amazing things. We've seen people come to faith from a variety of nations. And I'll share a story at the end um, 
That's, that, that's wonderful. God has also provided us a venue. So you'll see a picture of our launch service. This is way back February 12, 2010. Uh, we just called that our anniversary, nothing fancy. But we started in that very room, and we've now moved a couple of different places. We've had lots of uh, venue issues over the years. But just listen, listen to what happened to us on December 10th, 2021. So the, the government announces that they are changing the weekend of our country in 20 days. And just imagine if that happened here in the U.S., just the weekend was going to change instead of Saturday, Sunday. Hey, let's make it Sunday, Monday, which is what happened uh, with us in the UAE. They changed the weekend. We had 20 days notice. We normally had met on Friday mornings. And now we uh, had school on Friday mornings and work on Friday mornings. And, uh, but by, in God's kindness, it was initially a stress. The Lord provided a place for us to meet in the very center of downtown Dubai. Beautiful venue. And so we're thankful that in, in the, the government's change of the weekend, how we were blessed by them and blessed uh, by having a new venue. God's always provided a place for us to meet. And then our seminary, you can pray for this. Our uh, seminary, the Gulf Theological Seminary, has 133 students from 27 countries. I teach a church planning class, and we had 11 students from places like Angola and Lebanon and India, Philippines, Nigeria. 15 students graduate uh, over the years. I have three of them up here. So if you look at the left side, uh, we have a man from India who would love to plant a church in India one day. And then on the other side, we have a Nigerian staff member who would love to plant an African church in Dubai. And then we have a Filipino brother who's also on staff in our church who'd love to plant a church in uh, Dubai. So these are the people that uh, we, in God's kindness, are trying to raise up uh, to be leaders in the global church in Dubai and beyond. And so with that, friends, I, we just want to say thank you. We're able to, to do this ministry. We're able to, to, to lead this seminary. We're able to lead this church and plant churches because of, of Firewheel Bible Fellowship and your long-standing partnership with us. Uh, so it's a delight to be here in Rowlett. It is like coming home because we know so many of you. Uh, North Texas is also home uh, to us in many ways. Uh, I came to faith in Christ, and my wife Gloria came to faith in Christ at the University of North Texas, just down the road from here. Uh, we both graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. Gloria and I were married in Denton. We had our first child in downtown Dallas. It's where I first served in ministry with you. Um, and so I don't know if you got the best of me or just the, the rookie uh, in me, but I was able to have an opportunity to serve this church and to be with many of you uh, in the position with, uh, with small groups. Got to know elders like Kelly McCarthy, uh, Fred Curtis, uh, Kevin Davis. Um, big encouragements to me in those early days. Along the way, uh, pretty soon after I left, you came, and Pastor Chris became such a dear friend to me. I hope you know that not only are you loved by Jesus, that's most of all, but you are loved by Pastor Chris and his family. You have a wonderful uh, pastor, and I just want to just praise God um, with you uh, for him. I, brother, I don't know anybody who's more enthusiastic about serving Christ than you. And I don't know anybody who's more enthusiastic about our ministry than you. And so I love coming here because it just encourages my soul. So if you get any encouragement here today, praise God. But I know I'm already encouraged being with you, being with you and your family. Looking forward to spending more time uh, together with all of you. Uh, but we praise God uh, for Firewheel. You'll always have a special place in our heart. And I can say, like Paul to the Philippians, uh, that you've been partnering with us in the gospel from the first day until now because you have. So thank you. Thank you for your ministry alongside with us. It is a collective ministry. Some go, some stay, but we all pray and we all support, don't we? And you guys have prayed and you guys have supported from that first day until now. So not all of us can go, not, but all of us can pray and uh, all of us can partner and all of us can encourage. So thank you for being that for us. So it is a collective ministry. So when I share bits and pieces of the ministry during the sermon and as I share stories at the end, I hope you feel that. I hope you feel that it's not, it's not my ministry. It's not even our ministry in Dubai, but it's our ministry together. And so with that, let's pray as we look into God's Word. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for another day when your mercies are new. We thank you for your love and care for us. We are loved. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you that we are loved. And we ask now as we look at your word that we would feel that love, that we would see that love, that we would be enamored by that love. Father, for those of us struggling today, as we look into your word, would it encourage us? Would it comfort us? Would you meet us wherever we're at today? Whether we know you, whether we're a follower of Christ or not, whether we are in a deep, dark trial, or whether we are in the good days. Oh, Father, whatever it is, would you speak to us through your word today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk today about a wedding. Many of us love weddings. We love attending a a good wedding. Magazines are dedicated to weddings. Movies, many movies about weddings. The wedding planner, the, the father of the bride, the princess bride, the runaway bride. There's a TV show called Bridezilla's. I promise I've never seen it. But I've, I've heard of it. Uh, while all cultures have weddings, it's interesting for me as a pastor in the Middle East to see the differences between uh, cultures and how weddings are unique. For the most part, weddings in our host culture separate the men and the women. Most of the ceremony, most of the activities, most of the, the, the partying happens separately. Men together and women together. I've officiated a traditional wedding in India. I was told that, that almost a thousand people would be attending the wedding. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a big wedding. Uh, I was a bit nervous and getting, getting ready for this wedding. However, as the ceremony started, I saw just a few dozen people there in a small room. And so I went up uh, to someone and I, and I asked and, and said, well, well where, where are all the people? I was, I was puzzled. But then it's then that I learned that in, in their culture, the reception was the main event. Most people just skipped the wedding and the pastor's words and just came for the food afterwards. Now, just that wouldn't fly here in the U.S., would it? For us, the reception is the reward for sitting through the wedding. No wedding, no food. Those are our cultural rules. Well, I'm most proud of our wedding reception 20 years ago. We're still the only ones I know who had Chick-fil-A cater their wedding with Chick-fil-A nuggets. Thousands of Chick-fil-A nuggets for our closest friends. That was our wedding. We still love Chick-fil-A. We're actually in a little bit of shock now because here's the deal. We can go into a store... Now, I know this isn't new for you. We can go into the store, and now we can find big jars, big uh, cartons of Chick-fil-A sauce for sale at the store. Have you seen this? God bless America. (laughs) Now, it's been 20 years since our wedding day. Just to be clear, just so I don't get in trouble with my lovely bride, Gloria, the wedding ceremony for me was still the main Events. Our church building was, was really long, and uh, because of the green carpet, it was known as the green mile that the bride had to walk down. When the doors opened in the back, uh, I could hardly see Gloria and her father there on the horizon. They were like little dots out in the back. felt like I was waiting forever for her to slowly walk down the aisle, but eventually she made it to me. We were married, and the rest is history. Well, today in our passage, we have another wedding. We have another unique wedding with many interesting cultural dynamics. Matthew chapter 22. If you haven't already turned there, uh, either on an app or in your Bible, turn with me there. Because we're going to walk through the verses. So I want you to be able to see this in front of you if you can. Matthew chapter 22, the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, the first book of the New Testament if you're new to reading the Bible. And it's a parable. It's a parable. Most parables have one main point. 
have some characters in the parable. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And there are two major themes in this passage. So if you're taking notes or just even to structure it in your mind, two main points. Number one, the king's invitation. And then number two, we'll see the people's response. The king's invitation, the people's response. And first, let's take the king's invitation. Look at verses 1 and 2. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Again, every parable has a cast of characters. In this one, the king is God the Father, and the son is God the Son, Jesus. And Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a feast given by a king in honor of his son. Parables aren't perfect analogies, uh, but they are good comparisons. This king is very generous. In verse 3, servants are sent out to summons those invited to the feast. You'd have to do this. There were no iPhones. There were no Google calendars in these days. In the ancient Near East, the king would send out invitations. People would RSVP somehow, but then the servants, they would have to go out and verbally notify that the wedding feast is ready, that the day had come. Now notice what happens in our parable here. Notice, notice what happens. The people don't come. Those invited to the king's son's wedding don't come. This would have shocked the original hearers. As Jesus told this parable, this would have shocked anybody within a hearing distance of this because when a king invites you to his palace, what do you do? You show up. You, you go. It's your obligation. And worse, if you had RSVP to the king like they may have done here, this was horribly shaming. Now, I've actually had the privilege of meeting some of the sheikhs, or you could call kings in our country. There are seven of them, seven emirates or seven kingdoms. And I've had the privilege of meeting three of them and having lengthy conversations with two of them. Now, these were not appointments that I set according to my calendar. You know, when the king invites you, you come. In one case, I was invited with a couple of other pastors up north, and we went to one of the king's palaces, and we, we saw it layered in gold, big blue peacocks in the front uh, yard. It was the first time I'd shaken hands with someone and called them your royal highness and wasn't joking around with a friend. I mean, this was a king, and we were in his palace, and we were, we were able to sit down with him, and he graciously granted lands for our church plant to build a building, which is incredible. But that meeting didn't happen when we were available. They never checked our schedule. The meeting happened whenever the king wanted it. We had to be ready at a moment's notice. One time we were summoned by another king just the night before to show up the next morning. And so did we take time to look through our calendar? No, we just canceled anything we had because that's what you do when a king summons you. Because he's the king. That's why. Well, in our passage, the king is ignored. I mean, do you see that? They just don't show up. But the king is incredibly gracious. Look there. Rather than being offended immediately, rather than just turning away from them, the king tells the servants, why don't you go out, just describe the lavish feast that I'm providing. Describe the party. Describe the reception. See? Verse 4, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. That was the best food. They've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, this was no ordinary feast. This was not just a wedding. This was the greatest wedding, a feast like no other. But in verse 5, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. They couldn't be interrupted. I mean, just look again at verse 5. Notice the phrases, his farm. Do you see that? His business. Not even the king could interrupt their lives. 
But the shocking response didn't end there. Verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. I mean, this is an insane response to an invitation to a wedding. The king invites them to the wedding. They don't come. That's shocking. But now they're killing the messengers. I mean, just step back a second and observe this, this insane scene, this insane parable. The servants, they have a message of good news, great news, marriage feast. It's ready to go. Come on in to this reception of all receptions. The king wants you to come in to his son's wedding. The best food, the best celebration. All you have to do, okay, all you have to do is to, to accept it, to walk in. That's it. Wasn't a potluck even. You didn't have to bring, your, bring food. You didn't have to do something. You, just, you showed up. But what did they do instead? Well, they beat up the messengers simply for being messengers. They beat up the messengers. They killed the messengers for sharing a message, a message of good news. I mean, isn't this crazy? Maybe you've read this parable before. I mean, maybe today it's, you, your, your eyes are even open to just how insane it is. It makes no sense. Verse 7, well, the king was angry. Well, you bet he was. You bet he was. His servants were killed. And so he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So we see the righteous anger of the king burned, rightfully so. Perfect justice executed. But we still have a problem. We have an empty wedding feast. There's nobody there. It's a son's wedding feast. Well, verses 8 and 9, the king sends out servants one more time. Here's some, some new instructions. Look at these verses. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. The original guests weren't worthy. Well, who do they represent in the parable? Well, they represent the Jews and the religious leaders of the day. But they don't seem to think that they need the king or that they have to respond to the king. The king says, all right, then I'm, I'm going to send you to a, a different people. He's talking about the Gentiles. Go to the main roads. Go to the other cities and invite everyone. Everyone you can find. That corner, this corner, verse 10, that's what they did. They invited people that had no relationship to the king. A surprising invite. No reason to be a guest. But what was their response? Well, they came. They came in droves. The servants gathered anybody and everybody, last-minute invites on the spot. They stopped what they were doing. They didn't check people's passports at the door. There's no background checks, no proof of bank balance. Everyone on the streets, they were just handed a verbal uh, invitation probably at that point to the king's palace. And that wedding hall was filled. It was filled, every seat taken. But something's wrong. Look at verses 11 and 12. All is not right. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw one man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Everyone else wearing a wedding garment except this one man. See, oftentimes in the ancient Near East, uh, they would hand out a wedding garment to you as you entered in to the wedding, or in this case, to uh, the palace. Either that's what happened here, or all are wearing the same white garments, or at the very least, all wearing clean garments. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is there's one man who's entered in who's not dressed for the occasion. There's one man who stands out. There's one man who's not in the wedding garment. Now, friends, have you ever found yourself in an awkward dressing situation? You know, you arrive at an, at an event and you realize really quickly that you are severely underdressed. It's super awkward. Everyone's wearing suits, ties, and dresses. Maybe you haven't been in one of these situations, but you can imagine being in one of these, these situations. Everyone wearing ties, everyone wearing dresses, and you show up in jeans and a Dallas Cowboys jersey. 
it's a little bit awkward. And so you try to tuck in your jersey to the jeans. Maybe that'll look better. You try to sit and hide behind the food. Well, my most embarrassing dress code moment was when my former seminary professor and one of uh, my professors flew to Dubai and we were meeting together. Now, this was an intimidating professor. He had two doctorates. He wore very nice clothes. He was kind of scary to meet with. He put fear into mortal men like me. I was meeting with him, and I have no idea why I dressed like this, but I was wearing these real baggy cargo shorts, and uh, I, I don't remember what shirt I was wearing. But the real problem is I took him to my favorite Chinese restaurant in the world to eat. And we get there to the front to the, to the host, and pretty soon the, the host said, uh, we've got a dress code here in the restaurant. You have to wear pants to enter in. Utter humiliation there with my seminary professor, but it got worse because they said, oh, no problem. I'll go get you a pair of pants that the waiters wear. And so he brought out this pair of pants and said, you can go to the restroom right over there, sir, and you can change into these pants. And let me just tell you that that walk from the restroom to the table with the professor, I now label as the walk of shame. <laughs> Utter embarrassment. But I had the wrong wardrobe. And I had to conform to the standards of the restaurant. Now the man in our passage, he had the wrong wardrobe on. No wedding garment, far worse than wearing a football jersey or shorts to a fancy restaurant. Somehow, he had snuck through the bouncers at the door and invited guests acting like he's a wedding crasher. It seems he thought his own garments were good enough for the king. But he was wrong. The king commands his servant. Look at verses 13 and 14. Bind him, the man with the wrong garments, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, that's the end of our passage. On the face of it, that's a pretty strong penalty for leaving your tie at home. He doesn't get handed a, a garment like I did at the Long Yin Chinese restaurant. No, back in verse 12, he couldn't even answer the king for his wardrobe choices. Here we have the king having him bound and cast into outer darkness, a place of weeping, a place of gnashing of teeth. The Bible calls this place our, the place of eternal judgment. Not having this wedding garment meant not having eternal life with God. Now this sounds like a severe punishment for putting on the wrong shirt in the morning. But of course, that's not what this text is about. This text is not about our wardrobe uh, choices in the morning. When I pray at the end of my sermon, none, none of you have to slip out the back door because of what you wore this morning. This is not what the text is about. It's not about clothing choices. It's not about how stylish you are. It's not about what you wore here this morning. That's not what this text is about. This text is about our response to God's work. This text is about our response to what God has already done for us. And that's the second point of our passage. We'll be more brief here, but the second point is the people's response. So you've seen the king's invitation. It goes far and wide. The messengers, they go everywhere, down the road, up the road, into the neighborhoods. They invite everyone. everyone. Well, number two, what's the people's response? Well, we started to, to hear already, to see that uh, the people came. But this man, this one man, the man without the wedding garment, uh, he had mocked the host's provision of the wedding clothes. This was an insult. Like I said, most weddings you would get, you would get, um, you'd be given a wedding garment. Here, this is an insult. There's a complacency. There was even a rebellion. His best, the best of this man could do on his own wasn't good enough for God. And the man is thrown out of the feast. Now this reminds us of a, a few passages. How about Isaiah uh, chapter 61 verse 10? All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The point is, we're not fit for the feast on our own. Also in Isaiah, I delight greatly in the Lord. This is chapter 61, verse 10, actually. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he, listen to this. 
This is in Isaiah. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. It's a prophecy here in Isaiah. He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed and, and me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. See, the meaning of this parable is quite clear. It's stunning and it's shocking, but it's quite clear. Parables often have one very clear, obvious point, and the meaning of this parable is clear. God provided a feast, which is a symbol of his kingdom. It's a feast for his son, and the invitation, it goes far and it goes wide to everyone. But if you reject this invitation, you miss the feast. And if you think you can get in by your own works, by your own robe of righteousness, you'll be thrown out. Verse 14 tells us, many are invited, but few will come. There's a call and there's a response. It's been said that that word chosen here was originally a synonym for Israel, but with their rejection also came an invitation to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Jesus is speaking of the Jews, their religious leaders, those who boast of their tithes, those who would pray loud prayers on the street corners, not to pray to God, but to be seen by man. The point is, those things don't save. Our religious works and actions don't save. You're no better than a tax collector before God. You're only invited into the feast if you say, I have nothing in my hands to bring. You only enter in that feast if you say, nothing in my hands I bring. These wedding clothes here in this passage represent the righteousness of Christ. Our passage shows us at least four ways you can respond to this offer of Righteousness. Four ways you can respond to the king's summons when he summons you and invites you to his feast, to the kingdom. First is apathy. Did you see that in our passage? Those first invitees, they just went about their farm. They went about their business, his business, his farm. They went about their personal lives without any regard. It was apathy. Second response is hostility. We'd speak of that uh, as persecution today. Right? The messengers were beaten and killed. Third is, is self-righteousness. The man comes, but how does he come? Well, he comes in his own robe, his own clothes. He won't accept the king's wedding garments. It's, it's, it's one who thinks he can get into heaven, into the feast, into the party on his own merit. But there's a fourth way. There's a fourth way, and this is the way the Bible teaches us. These were people who actually came into the wedding banquet. And there, this represents anyone who comes to Jesus on the basis of Christ's work and on the basis of his righteousness alone. And friend, the good news this morning, or now afternoon, is that all of us are invited to the feast. I don't care if you're five years old in here or if you're 85 years old in here. I don't care if you're in the youth group. I don't care if you're mom or dad or single, older, younger. I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you're new to this church or you've been attending for a while. This message, this invitation from the king comes to you today. And if you don't know him, oh friend, would you know him? Would you follow him? And there's, there's nothing you've got to do. See, he's done it all. Jesus, God in the flesh, he came to this earth. He lived the perfect life. Temptation, yes. Sin, no. He never sinned. He lived the perfect life. And he marched to that cross, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of his people's sins. How do we know this is true? Well, because on the third day, he rose from the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. I love how you said life, resurrection. This is what Jesus did, and this is what he provides today. He provides life for us because he lived, because he rose from the dead. And so I just ask you, friends, have you responded to the king's invitation? Maybe you've been attending Firewheel for a while. Maybe you're new. Again, I don't know your circumstances, but if you've never turned to Christ in faith, because that's all you, you got to do is believe. To believe in Christ, turn from your sin, doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. You will over time sin less as a Christian, but we're still going to fight. But here's what, here's what happens when we trust in Jesus. He carries us home. He's with us in this life, and he takes us to the next life. 
Friend, if you are a Christian, you've already put your faith in Christ, well, praise God. Be comforted this morning. There is a day coming when we will be at that banqueting table, when we will be at that feast. And oh, the food will be good, the friends will be great, but we will be face to face with our Savior, and that'll be the greatest. So the first response is to believe, but it doesn't stop there. As Christians, we're also called to share this invitation with others. We're ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors. We're the ones who do the inviting today. So you, you see in our passage the messengers who go out. That's us today. We're to go out. So what's, what, what are the two sub-points really under the people's response? Well, one is you have to respond for salvation. And then two, you have to respond by telling others about this wedding feast. So friends, are you inviting your friends and family to the feast? Are you inviting them to come here on Sundays? Are you inviting them by sharing the gospel with your coworkers, your family, your friends, your neighbors? I know that's easier said than done. But let me encourage you with two stories from our church, and then we'll close. Chris said I can preach till 1 p.m., so we'll, <laughs> we'll end a few minutes before that. But I do see a clock up there, but I have two stories. I have two stories, and then we'll pray. Two stories from Dubai about inviting those to the kingdom. First story, let me share about our oldest elder, Jerry. Jerry's from the Philippines, and I love Jerry. He's a sweet man. He loves sharing about Jesus and handing out invitations to the wedding feast. One dinner, he was at our house, and he was sharing uh, with three other couples about uh, someone he was sharing his faith with, and we were all like, wow, that's amazing. We want to pray. When did this happen? He was like, today. And that's how Jerry is. He just shares the gospel day after day. Well, Jerry met Adam from Afghanistan at, at, at his workplace, and he started bringing Adam to our church services. And Adam had been attending for about six months or so, and God had begun stirring in Adam's heart. So one day, uh, John chapter 12, Jesus is the good shepherd. Pastor Morgan from our church. Morgan is from Australia. So a Filipino brother brings an Afghan brother into the church service, and, uh, and Australian brother preaches from John chapter 12, Jesus is the good shepherd. Wonderful, amazing. Well, later on that week, Adam has a dream. A lot of times God uses dreams in our part of the world bring, and helps bring people uh, to faith that way. Well, Adam has a dream and has a dream of, of a Jesus-like figure, a white figure uh, calling himself the good shepherd and calling Adam to himself. And so Adam comes in next week and he starts telling me about this dream and he starts telling me uh, about what, what Pastor Morgan preached on Jesus as the Good Shepherd and I had a dream of the Good Shepherd and I really want to follow Jesus, but I'm scared. See, he comes from a very conservative background. He was worried that not only would his family harm him, but his friends right there in the city would kill him if he followed Christ. And so he said, I, I'm too afraid. Well, three weeks after that, Samuel from Nigeria. You saw a picture of him with the uh, graduation cap earlier. He was preaching his very first sermon at our church. We've been training him. He graduated. And I, I normally will let uh, these preachers in their first sermon with us, just whatever you want to preach, whatever is on your heart. And he picked this passage several months before, Psalm 23. Maybe you know that psalm. The Lord is my Shepherd. So there's Adam sitting in the back listening to this sermon, the Lord is my shepherd. And uh, a bunch of people act actually afterwards come up to me um, and are talking to me, and there kind of forms a bit of a semicircle of Afghans and Iranians, and they're just kind of talking to me. And there's a man, I'll call him Henry, it's not his real name, uh, but he uh, comes up and says, wow, pastor, the Lord is doing a work in my heart heart. I believe. I, I, I believe. And so I'm like, well, praise God. And so we start, okay, I ask question after question just for about five or seven minutes. We're doing a little, kind of a little interview of his, hearing his testimony, hearing what God did. And he's got a right understanding of the gospel. And it seems like God really did change his heart, either right in the service, uh, perhaps the week before. But he believed then. And so we, we clapped, we celebrated, and we just prayed. I prayed a prayer of thanksgiving over Henry. And we rejoiced, and we cheered, and we praised God for the saving of Henry. But it didn't stop there. Because outside of the semicircle, just kind of right behind the semicircle was Adam. And Adam kind of pushed his way forward, and, and he had his hand raised. And I said, Adam, do you have something to say? And Adam's English is better. Some of the other men coming uh, from those backgrounds, we have some translation going on, but Adam's English is pretty good, and he, he, he tells me something that I'll never, ever, ever forget. He raises his hand, puts it down, and he says, Pastor, I do have something to say. Pastor, the Lord is my shepherd. He will protect me. 
And he said, I believe. I believe. And so we did the same thing. I asked him some questions about Jesus and about the gospel. And it, it seems like right then the Lord had changed his life and brought him to repentance and faith through this Nigerian preacher preaching this passage from Psalm 23, through this Australian preacher preaching through Jesus as the Good Shepherd from John chapter 12, through this dream that he, that he gave him, and through an Iranian brother who was leading a small group for him. And, and, and God was using the church. God was using these individuals. And it started even with Jerry just extending an invite to Adam to come to our church service. And so a couple months later, we baptized Adam. And it was just a glorious uh, service. We had tears down our eyes just hearing his testimony and hearing about the persecution that he might face. And he did. He went home to his home country. And uh, he ended up having to run for his life with his family away from his own uh, family there who uh, said that they would uh, kill him for his faith. So please pray for Adam. But think about God's kindness here. A Filipino elder invited an Afghan into our community. An Australian pastor preaches. God gives him a dream. A Nigerian brother preaches. An Iranian brother leads a Bible study. And Adam comes to faith. Praise God. Praise God. All right, one more story. One more story. This happened just a few days before we left for the U.S., and uh, it was wonderful. I had uh, just finished preaching John chapter 13, the part of Judas uh, betraying Jesus. So they just had the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse begins, and um, the betrayal comes. And an African man named Mark and a British man named Tim, they came up to me and they shared their story. Tim's father is a pastor, but Tim had long left the faith decades earlier and was an alcoholic. He had just started Alcoholics Anonymous. He had been sober for two weeks. And uh, it's amazing because Tim's dad is a pastor, and Tim's dad had visited him in Dubai, had gone to the grocery store, and somehow uh, made a friendship with this younger African man named Mark. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to the grocery store, I don't normally make friends. I'm thinking about, okay, do I pay the extra money for Blue Bell or Blue Bunny ice cream? You know, what do I get here and there? But somehow this older man in his 70s, this pastor, befriends a young African man at the grocery store. And this pastor dad has just a heart for his son. His son has left the, the faith, left the church. And so he asks this younger African man, will you please reach out to my son? He gives him his phone number, and, and, and Mark does just that. He starts calling Tim, and Tim's about 15 years older, different culture. They start hanging out. They develop a friendship, and Mark's inviting Tim to come to our church service. Time and time again, and each time, Tim just turns him down, turns him down, turns him down. And on that particular Sunday when I'm preaching on John, John 13, he woke up that morning, and he was going to turn him down again. He said, I'm about to call Mark. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no. I can't go. But something stopped him, and, and he just said he felt this feeling, I can't let my friend down one more time. And so they both showed up. And uh, they come to me after the service, and Tim was just overwhelmed. He said, I can't remember the last time I even sung a song. I can't remember the last time I was in a church service. And during the sermon on Judas from John chapter 13, right in the middle of it, he was so overwhelmed that he walked to the very back of the room. It's kind of a long, narrow meeting hall. And he walked to the back of the room, and uh, Mark showed me a picture of, 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 of Tim. And he showed me this picture, and he said, this was, this was Tim d during your sermon. Tim had gone to the back, sat in, in one of these big red chairs, had his hands covering his face, weeping, and he decided it was time to call his pastor dad on the phone. And he told his dad, he said, Dad, I know you've been praying for me. I, I'm, I'm in a church service right now, and God is doing something in my life. And it was just remarkable to think about. Just think about Mark uh, just inviting Tim over and over and over again. Just think about Tim's dad. Even, I mean, who befriends a younger person of a different nationality at the grocery store and has the audacity to ask him to invite his son to church? Who actually, actually follows up with that over and over and over again and then brings Tim really on the very week he needed to hear Judas and the betrayal of Jesus? So friends, praise God for the stories. I have more. I'm going to stop there. But I want to call, uh, call us to, to, to be ambassadors. That's our job. It's to be like those messengers in the passage. It's that we go out to the roads, we go out far and wide inviting people to the feast, whether it's at the workplace like Jerry, whether it's a supermarket like Tim's dad, uh, whether it's Mark reaching out to a man he'd never even met. Every story is different. Every story of invitation is different, but each one had a servant inviting others to the wedding feast. And so Firewheel Bible Fellowship, 
on this July Sunday. It is hot outside. It is, uh, you know, I don't know what you're dealing with in your personal life. But I want to leave you with this question. Are you keeping your eyes and ears open to hand out invitations to others to God's kingdom? Whether it's a nurse at the hospital, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a coworker, whether it's someone in your own family, whether it's your child, little or grown, whether it's a parent. See, the servants in our parable are evangelists. The feast is a symbol of eternal life, and we're called both to believe the gospel and to share the gospel. Maybe you feel intimidated. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you're someone who's been a believer for a while, and you don't know what you can say or how you can say it. Well, you don't have to be eloquent in your theology. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon, uh, his grandfather preaching one day in London. See, by, by this point, Charles Spurgeon was world famous. They were actually publishing his sermons in the newspaper. Just imagine that here in the DFW Metroplex, if they would publish Chris Carroll's sermons in the newspaper. That would be amazing. He was so well known, Charles Spurgeon was, uh, that he was late for this uh, time. People were a little disappointed, I'm assuming. But his grandfather was there, and his grandfather jumped into the pulpit and started preaching. Well, while he was preaching, the young, famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon walked in, and his grandfather stopped the, uh, the message at that point and, and, and upon acknowledging his famous son, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he said this. He said, here, here he is. T take a look at him. He's my grandson, the great Charles Spurgeon. He's here now. He may be a greater preacher than I, but he can't preach a greater gospel. Friends, do you see that? Do you see that if you're saved and you know Jesus, you can hand out invitations to come to the feast? All you got to know is our God and what He has done for us. Brothers and sisters, God has brought you here as Firewall Bible Fellowship to be a light for the nations here in Dallas, Fort Worth Metroplex, in Dubai, and beyond. Friends, let me pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for this wonderful day. What a, what a day just to remember your sweet mercies and that we're all armed with the same gospel, that we're all armed with the same good news, that we're all armed with this message, this invitation to us and that we can hand out to others. So, Father, thank you for your word. Would we be a people that would go far and wide to invite others to the feast? Would we not grow weary in sharing the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world? Oh, Father, bless this body of believers. Bless this church that, that our family loves so much. Bless this church to make disciples of all nations throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So here's what I believe. I believe God brought Dave and Gloria Furman to this church this morning for Dave to proclaim that message because it's exactly what you needed to hear. You see, our Father in Heaven is able to have a unique relationship with each one of his kids and he has a way of speaking to you specifically in a way that you know he's talking to you and I believe that God is speaking to you specifically this morning out of this passage out of the the marriage supper and you're like how did he know because Jesus loves you and he's calling you by name and that's how he does it he does it in a very unique way and I believe he is calling you this morning so if that is you and you know that Jesus is calling you to believe in him. It's calling you to respond in faith. And I'm going to ask that you raise your hand right now. And you know this morning or this afternoon Jesus is calling you. Anybody in here? See, you notice I didn't tell you to bow your head or close your eyes. We're not ashamed.